what you are basically. Deep, deep down, far, far in, is simply the fabric and structure of existence itself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. Honestly expressing yourself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. The fabric and structure of existence itself. Hi everybody, welcome to the Parallel Mike Podcast, episode number 16. I'm your host Mike, and in today's episode we're going to be looking into one of the most mysterious and secretive corporations on earth. One that doubles up as a city and that is the City of London Corporation in England. Now, for those of you who don't know the City of London Corporation or what that represents, it's a one-mile district just off the River Thames, and it's an enclave of the banking oligarchies and completely separate as an entity to London itself. It has its own mayor, its own police force, its own representatives in Parliament, and it's essentially the financial control room for the international banking oligarchy, without which the global coup that is now well underway could never ever have taken place. This is a long-arching plan that has gone back over a thousand years, and the City of London is intrinsic to that narrative and that story. So what is its history? How did it come to exist? Who are they who are behind the City of London? And are they really more powerful than the monarchy? Well, in part one of tonight's show, I'm going to be exploring the murky past of the City of London Corporation from its Roman origins to its takeover by the Lombards, also known as the Venetian Black Nobility. We will look at how the City of London became a prized square on the global chessboard, how it was fought over successively for hundreds of years until finally the banking clans got established there and opened the Bank of England, the bank which all other central banks would later be modelled on, including the Federal Reserve. In part two, we will go deeper into some of the more occult elements of this story, including looking at the false flag that was the Great Fire of London, which began in the City of London, in 1666, yes, a very important date, 1666. We'll be checking out the ceremony of the Pale Sword, which is where the reigning monarch of the country is not allowed to enter the city without permission and without taking part in this ceremony, the ceremony of the Pale Sword beforehand. So we're going to also look at some symbolism, some numerology. There's so much to unpack on this one. This episode is definitely not one I've heard anyone else do, hence why I chose to release it as a topic. And I think it's going to add a lot to your understanding of where we are today and how we got here. Members, please go over to parallelmike.com to listen to the full episode. Part one and part two will be there in the member section. If you're not a member yet, well, this is a fantastic episode to jump on board. Part two is really a bombshell part. I added so much to this one. I think you're going to love it. So if you're interested, if you want to spot censorship-free content, please go over to parallelmike.com and join us as a member. We would love to have you there. In closing, thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoy it. If you do, please leave me a positive review on your favorite podcasting app. If you would like to book a depth tarot session with me or a preparedness consultation to look at how you can get yourself prepared or get yourself spiritually and mentally prepared for whatever comes next and a depth tarot session will help you figure out what's coming next, then please check out the consultations page on my website. I do have some spaces in the coming weeks. In closing, once again, thank you for listening. I hope you are well, healthy, happy, and of course, I'll see you all in the next one. The City of London's history begins with the founding of a settlement by the Romans called Londinium. It's believed that Londinium was founded in and around AD 43, although the exact dates here matter less to us 
than what the founding of the settlement puts into motion. The engineering ubermensch that they were, the Romans built the city walls that today delineate the square mile right up to the present day that constitutes the city of London, essentially drawing a very real line in the sand between the city of London and everything else. Londinium became the capital of Roman Britain following the Claudian invasion. At its peak during the days of Rome, the city boasted a population of around 50 to 60,000. Despite this, a 2021 census showed that just 8,583 people now reside there permanently. Today, the City of London is home to the Bank of England, the London Stock Exchange, the London Bullion Metals Exchange, and it also headquarters or offices some of the world's largest banking houses, including HSBC, the Rothschilds Bank, NatWest, Lloyds, the British Arab Commercial Bank, Coots, and historically, many, many more, including the Makota Goldschmidt Company, Samuel Montague & Co., Sharps Wilkins, to name but a few. Many of these names were synonymous with gold and precious metals and therefore banking also. Well, as you can see, the City of London is an extremely important financial centre today and it's interesting if you go back throughout its history, it always has been. In fact, the reason that the Romans chose the City of London as the base was because it was right on the Thames. They found that settlement and decided to wall it off and use it as a place for centering all of their commerce around because of course there's the big river there that they can sail things up and down. So moving forward, going back to the origins of the city of London, it's important because what it tells us is that the city originated under the Romans and from this period on it was occupied and it had significance for a number of reasons. One is that the Romans enacted a corporate structure. They were the ones who brought in this corporate Roman law structure, which we'll be getting into in today's episode. And if you've got the idea, as I do, that we're living in a sort of revived Roman empire, which I'm going to discuss later on it's worth bearing in mind that the city of London came all the way from the Romans. Also if we go back we can see that the city of London was built for finance, it was built with commerce in mind, becoming a key power centre for trade and finance for the Romans given its location on the Thames. Now this ensured it remained an important hub for merchants and traders too and it goes without saying that many elite families grew up around that place because they had their base there too so the money changers soon moved in and they would have been there on the shores in the city of London where you could put your money with them you could deposit them after coming back or before going so the money changers will have been there from the very beginning of the operation also. Over the next 1000 years epochs ended and Rome as an empire fell leaving the city of London cast adrift. The Saxon monarchs were as the the Romans pleased with what they saw when they cast their eyes upon the city of London, restoring buildings and encouraging residents who had moved beyond the city walls to return. They renamed Londinium Londonberg or London Fort. It proved worthy of its name, so much so that when the Normans tried to take the city of London by force in 1066, they failed to get across London Bridge and lay their hands on the city of London. It was they who would eventually in 1075 sign the charter granting the city of London sovereign rights, setting in motion the establishment of what came to be known as the City of London Corporation, a unique entity that would be outside the control of the monarchy and legally separate from the remainder of England. Okay, so admittedly we are glossing over a fair bit of history today and given the scope of today's episode, I had to do it this way. But we can probably assume that the wealthy oligarchs had already established themselves in the city long before it became incorporated. And it makes sense that they would have been a political power in their own right by this time. Remember, they'd been set up there ever since AD 46 and therefore they would have been there over a thousand years. So irrespective of what happened with Rome and the empire, remember this was on the furthest flung reaches of the empire and it will have maintained its state as a trading city. It was right down the Thames, so it would have always had trade coming in and out and therefore it's safe to assume that families would have grew up in and around there that managed to retain their wealth and their status. So you get the sense that there was at all times a sort of hidden hand involved with the dealings of the city of London and the fact that when the Saxons came across and then the Normans and they wasn't able to take the city suggests that also. 
you know, that the Normans in 1066 stopped at London Bridge. That suggests to me that there was probably already a deal done. And I don't think the city of London had a standing army. So there must have been a deal done with the oligarchs that if they were loyal to the king and they swayed allegiance to him, he'd allow them to continue. Now, around this time over in Venice, the banking clans were already well established also, having moved their operations from Rome to Venice and Genoa and Florence to some degree in the early part of the millennia. And they were already lending to European monarchs. Now, you have to understand these were extremely rich families, extremely rich and powerful banking clans. And they'd moved through the system. So they'd gone from ancient Babylon to Egypt, they were the Phoenicians, then they moved on to Rome, and of course they ended up in Venice. So they had intergenerational wealth going back, some say thousands of years. So they had the money to lend. Remember, what we're talking about here is real money, God's money, and that is gold and silver. So when I say money, you have to remember, when we say money today, people are often referring to paper money and currency. Now, paper money and currency does not transmit intergenerationally, and that is why you were told to save in it. That is why all of our assets are denominated in it because they want to take our true wealth which is our assets and strip us of them and give us paper wealth give us worthless fiat notes but what they're actually doing is what you are not told to do they're storing their money in real assets that's land that's artwork that's palaces that's antiques that's rare artifacts but above all else it's gold and silver and these families had been accumulating gold and silver for thousands of years so we actually have no idea just how much gold and silver they have uh, or they had at the time but it was more than the monarchies and they were lending that to the monarchies to enact war so it's just important to make that point that it was gold and silver they were hoarding and lending out and of course they achieved this by practicing usury which was something that was outlawed by the papacy but they were doing that so that's how they were managed to enrich themselves and to keep themselves in a position of prominence now we'll be coming back to the venetians many times in this episode so let's move on with the next quote the William I Charter to the City of London is a small but iconic piece of vellum and the oldest document in the city's archive, given by King William I the Conqueror to the city in 1067, soon after the Battle of Hastings, but before he entered the City of London. It has been in the city's keeping continuously ever since. It measures just six inches by one and a half with two slits, the larger one used to seal the tongue and the other as a tie. The seal impression, although detached and imperfect, is one of the earliest surviving examples from William's reign. The small piece of text from the king to the city states the following. William the king friendly salutes William the bishop and Godfrey the portreeve and all the bear jests within London, both French and English. And I declare that I grant you to be all law worthy as you were in the days of King Edward. And I grant that every child shall be his father's heir after his father's days, and I will not suffer any person to do you wrong. God keep you. The document reflects William's recognition of the importance of London and its concentration of trade and wealth, which he wished to safeguard. After defeating the English army under Harold at the Battle of Hastings in October 1066, William brought his forces on a slow and marauding march north, subjugating towns along the way before forming an encampment at Westminster. One of the primary concerns in the Charter was to ensure that the succession to property was not subject to arbitrary royal intervention. This is very different from what happened elsewhere in the kingdom, where not only was everything upended and people dispossessed from their holdings and titles, but particularly in the northeast, there was the harrying of the north, from which to a degree the area has never properly recovered. The document is one in a long line of charters which the citizens of London extracted from the sovereign. There are now over a hundred royal charters in the city's archives. So like I said, it appears that for reasons history doesn't want to overtly express that the city of London was already in 1066 being afforded an exalted place that put it even beyond the reaches of the feuding monarchs at the time. Now this certainly didn't mean that the city of London had the keys to the kingdom just yet. There was an awful lot of power games that were going to take place over the next five, six hundred years with the monarchs, as I'm going to get to in a moment. But clearly there was a lot of residual power already there. And when you can see that by just looking at the history and how it managed to take place. Now, if you live in the UK and you want to know why the North is typically the poorer parts of the United Kingdom, well, now you know there was the harrying of the North. And what this really shows you is just how important intergenerational wealth is 
and not just now but going forward hundreds and thousands of years the citizens of the city of London they got to keep their inherited wealth and that was absolutely key whereas all of these people in the north of England they got their wealth and their titles stripped from them so essentially they had to start again and all these years later if you look at the makeup of England what we see is that all of the rich and wealthy elites are down south and the poorest regions are up north so these kind of things matter now when it comes to the topic of intergenerational wealth what you'll find is when you look at these elite oligarchies these families that people call the elites they are absolutely obsessed with intergenerational wealth and this goes back to the venetians and the venetians would come to call this the family fondo and this was this obsession with accumulating as much money as possible then transferring that wealth intergenerationally within one family and this is a source of oligarchical power this is how it's done you basically manage to transfer your wealth whilst everyone else gets theirs stripped from them so whilst the rest of England in this instance got served and thrust upon them in which property rights were removed and people were dispossessed of their lands and property or forced to pay new taxes, these elites who were already residing in the city of London had their rights immediately guaranteed by the king. So moving on, if this is puzzling you, when you are looking at these historical narratives, the rule of thumb that I follow is if the story doesn't make any sense, then you have to follow the money. And when you follow the money, it cuts through a lot of the lies and BS and propaganda. And usually it reveals the hidden actors. Because once you can see where the money is, you can see who was truly in power at that time. And then you can formulate a more authentic narrative as to what is actually going on. So the question then arises, who was funding the monarch at the time? In the article, Venice's War on Western Civilization featured in the 1995 Schiller Institute's Fidelio magazine, the author had this to say. Between 12,000 ACE and about 1600 ACE, the world centre of gravity for the cancerous forces of oligarchism was the oligarchy of Venice. Toward the end of that time, the Venetian oligarchy decided for various reasons to transfer its family's fortunes and characteristic outlook to a new base of operations, which turned out to be the British Isles. The old program of a worldwide new Roman Empire with its capital in Venice was replaced by the new program of a worldwide new Roman Empire with its capital in London what eventually came to be known as the British Empire. This was the metastasis of the cancer, the shift of the Venetian party from the Adriatic to the banks of the River Thames. And this has been the main project of world oligarchy during the past five centuries. The Venetian party, wherever it is, believes in epistemological warfare. They helped defeat the Hohenstaufen rulers of Germany and Italy. Venetian intelligence assisted Genghis Khan as he attacked and wiped out powers that had resisted Venice. The Venetians caused the death of the poet and political figure Dante Alighieri, who developed the concept of the modern sovereign nation-state in opposition to the Venetian plans for empire. A series of wars with Genoa later led to the de facto merger of Venice and Genoa. The Venetian bankers, often called Lombards, began to loot many parts of Europe with usurious loans. Henry III of England in the years after 1255 became insolvent after taking huge Lombard loans to finance foreign wars at 120 to 180% interest. These transactions created the basis for the Venetian party in England. When the Lombard bankers went bankrupt because the English failed to pay, a breakdown crisis of the European economy ensued. This led to a new collapse of European civilization, including the onset of the Black Plague, which killed 30% of the world's population off. In the midst of the chaos, the Venetians encouraged their ally Edward III of England to wage war against France in a conflict that would become known as the 100 Years' War from 1339 to 1453. This held France into chaos before St. Joan of Arc defeated the English. This was then followed by the War of the Roses in England. As a result of the Venetian domination, the 14th century had become a catastrophe for civilization. So what we learn here is that in 1255, England had been bankrupted in what the Lombards called the Great Fleecing. And this was where the Lombards, also known as the Venetian Black Nobility, had issued loans to the king at 120 to 180%. This became known as Lombard lending, where they would lend at 
extremely high interest rates and if they couldn't pay they would take collateral on those loans and even today in finance there is such a thing called Lombard lending which is where you take a loan out and you have to put up something of collateral it's called collateralized lending so sometimes the interest rates were not the problem here it was that they didn't want them to pay those loans they wanted the collateral and that collateral could be many things it could be tax breaks it could be access to resources and commodities it could be having your own little enclave of on the River Thames. Now what I find really interesting about this time in history is it sounds so familiar. It's almost like we're living through this cycle where these parasitic lenders come in and they enact crises, they enact constant war, they enact pandemics, they enact depopulation because that's exactly what happened in the early part of the millennia. We had the Black Death that cut down the world's population by 30 to 40%. That's astronomical. We also had this major financial crisis in the early part that was caused by the Venetian banking clans. They caused that financial crisis and that is what preceded the Black Death. And of course, we just had never-ending war and the war was important. It needed to happen for them to be able to issue loans to the monarchs of Europe. They had to get them into war and they did this using espionage, using all of the dark arts that have become synonymous with modern intelligence. So essentially what we're uncovering with the City of London is in fact the long history of banking oligarchism. And this oligarchy has existed as far back as Mystery Babylon which I began to lay down in one of my first episodes of the podcast called Banksters of Babylon. So if you haven't heard that, please go check that one out. It'll give you some foundational knowledge. I've also spoken in the past on the podcast to Dylan Sokosio all about the Phoenicians. And the Phoenicians, well, it was the same families. The people who were running the Phoenicians, they were the same ones in Babylon. These were the priest class, these elites, these bankers. And then they became the Phoenicians. Then they went on to Greece and to Rome. Uh, as Phoenicians, we know they were sailing around the world. They went to the Americas where they extracted an awful lot of copper. This of course completely dispels the myth that it was Christopher Columbus who founded Americas. It was not, it was the Phoenicians. They did that hundreds of years before. In ancient Greece, the oligarchy existed also. They had their banking temple. It was the Temple of Apollo in Delphi. Then in Rome, we had hundreds of years of history where we saw these Roman oligarchical families all vying for control of the bullion trade internationally, including in the Occident before eventually fleeing to Venice, continuously building their scope of influence and refining their tactics, which we would recognize today as modern espionage. Like I said, modern espionage, the central intelligence agencies where they use honey traps they use blackmail assassination false flags well all of this really came from the venetians they also of course were enacting usury in the form of loans with interest added which of course was considered a grave sin by all religions for the reasons we are now exploring given that it very quickly can enable a small group of men or a small group of families to enslave entire nations. And this is the story that we are now looking at. This is exactly what happened. And whilst the history is murky, the further back we go, we know that from the early medieval period onwards, it's well established in the history books that these families were able to create extremely powerful banks in Venice and Genoa and were able for many centuries to control both the gold and silver trade and with it global geopolitics using their usurpation loans. When things again became too hot to handle, which happened because of course they were getting many of these monarchs into debt, they were bankrupting nations, they were enacting all kinds of dark arts and it wasn't just the loans that were causing problems, they were doing things like sabotage, bribery, assassinations, false flags, blackmail, slavery and on and on it went. So all of these other nations got together, they'd had enough of it and we had the War of Cambria in the 1500s in which the banking clans controlled by the Council of Ten were almost defeated by this league of other nations ultimately however they failed and the venetians managed to pull a rabbit out of the hat at the last minute they did some bribery and managed to get the league to split up and so the league failed and the banking cartels of venice realized at that point that they had to come up with a new plan because that really shook them quite a lot so they decided that they were going to expand out of venice and they needed to assimilate and consolidate their power by bringing in the monarchies into their network of control, not just through loans, but also via bloodlines too. And that's how the royal families like the Habsburgs, for example, ended up actually intermarrying with these Venetian and Genoese bloodlines. So if you want to know where most of the European royalty emanate from, if you go back far enough, you'll actually find it was from Venice. But moving on, 
The first central banks of Europe is a really important watershed moment for the banking oligarchy because that really marked the complete subduing of the monarchs to nothing more than figureheads because once they got control of the nation's money supply and then they could issue money at whim, they could then engender things like crashes and booms and bubbles and of course the goal was eventually to get to fiat money. Uh, so they did this first with gold and silver and they did this using loans that had usury attached or they would have collateralized lending. So I will give you this loan, but if you don't pay me back, I'm going to take your field off you. And that's how they became very, very rich in Italy. Uh, they were doing these loans to all the local farmers and smallholders and eventually became mega landholders. And then, of course, they expanded out and they opened the first central bank and that was in um, Amsterdam. So once the bankers had these nations beholden to them with fiat currency, they were able to do what we've seen happen today, where we've got a global debt-based system in which nations are forced to turn over our national resources and the labour of the citizens, no longer for gold or silver, but for worthless fiat notes. This is really the holy grail for the banking oligarchy. So this is why epistemological war was so important to these families. That's why that was the modus operandi, because they realised that if they could get a monarch to go to war with another country, well, essentially they could get them involved in an existential war where they would just need to keep borrowing more and more and more money, getting more and more indebted, and eventually that would lead to the Lombards having control over that nation and that's exactly what happened. Now of course they did it during the good times too. The monarchs were happy to be having these loans thrown at them where they could use it to build more and more opulent palaces and to go on hunting parties and basically indulge themselves. So they pandered to the monarchs also to their narcissism and that worked as well. They were using this debt-based money to live opulent lifestyles but of course at some point the piper had to be paid and ultimately the monarchs tried to push this back onto the nation. So this is where the idea of national or public debt came from and it's no different today is it's no different to how our governments behave all it basically means everyone is we've spent it and you're paying for it and we're going to tax you to the eyeballs to make sure you do now going back to the bible if you look back at the word for debt and sin it's essentially the same words the words are interchangeable in the bible now you cannot be held responsible in my opinion for a sin that you did not commit and yet today we are taught that we are born into existential debt. This is called the public debt. Now that goes against natural law. So when we are born, we are being offered the opportunity to participate in this national or public debt. But it's up to us to choose that. We have to willingly accept the offer because it goes against natural law. You cannot be held responsible for a debt or a sin that is not yours. Of course, we are tricked into doing this immediately upon birth through birth certificates. And that's when we become incorporated too. Now, this is a really important thing to understand as we get into tonight's episode talking about the incorporation of the City of London because you too and I also, we are incorporated upon birth. We become a corporate entity and this is where we can then be engaged in unnatural contracts that deny us our God-given rights and deny us natural law and put us into this Roman law system. Now this is absolutely key to understanding how these banksters managed to take over the world. It was using the legal system, that's why it's so important to them, but it's Roman law or admiral law that they're using and this is a key part of the scam that is taking place and again this comes out in the story of the city of London. So really this is how the Venetians managed to get their fangs into Europe. It was through the monarchs and then of course once they got them indebted enough they managed to make them puppets of themselves so they would become the people who were in control really, the shadow government let's say. And today it's no different. If you look at all the politicians of every nation on planet earth, if you think they work for us, well you are sorely mistaken. Um, some people think they work for the WEF but in essence you're still wrong if you think that because they might be taking their orders from the UN, the WEF and they might get their money from the central bank or the IMF or the World Bank but to draw a line from the Roman poet Juvenal in his satires, quis custodia e post custodes, who guards the guardians or put another way, from who do the IMF, the UN, the WHO, the WEF, from who do they derive their authority if not us? Okay, so let's move on now to the next section. In the next quote, I'm going to be lifting this directly from Wikipedia, and I did that for a reason. Basically, I want people to understand that this is not some grand conspiracy. It's actually very, very clear legally, and it's written down what the City of London is and the extraordinary power it possesses. 
Also, it's important for many future episodes to understand the corporate structure of the City of London and Roman law because we're going to be talking about how we ourselves are incorporated and how that is used as a key tool for trapping us in the system. The City of London Corporation, officially and legally the Mayor and Commonalty and Citizens of the City of London, is a municipal governing body of the City of London, the historic centre of London and the location of much of the United Kingdom's financial sector. In 2006, the name was changed from the Corporation of London as the corporate body needed to be distinguished from the geographical area to avoid confusion with the wider local government, the Greater London Authority. There is no surviving record of a charter first establishing the corporation as a legal body, but the city is regarded as incorporated by prescription, meaning that the law presumes it must have been incorporated because it has for so long been regarded as such. E.g. the Magna Carta states that the City of London Hall shall have and enjoy its ancient liberties. Because of its accumulated wealth and responsibilities, the corporation has a number of officers and officials unique to its structure who enjoy more autonomy than most local council officials, and each of whom has a separate budget. Number one, the town clerk, who is also the chief executive. Number two, the chamberlain, also the city treasurer and finance officer. Number three, the city remembrancer, who is responsible for protocol, ceremonial and security issues, as well as legislative matters that may affect the corporation. This is a person who is legally qualified, usually a barrister. The city surveyor, who is responsible for the central London commercial property portfolio. The comptroller and the city solicitor, a legal officer. The recorder of London, who is a senior judge at the criminal court, the Old Bailey. The common sergeant, the second senior judge at the central criminal court. Technically the legal advisor to the common council. The sword bearer and the mace bearer, who walk ahead of the Lord Mayor. And there's also a few other roles as well, such as the three esquires at the mansion house. That's the city marshal, the sword bearer and the mace bearer. And that is usually senior military officers with diplomatic experience. There's also the chief commoner and the ward. Beatles. So there you have it everyone, just like I said the City of London is a private corporation and that is why their council has a town clerk, that's the name that you see, but he's also called a chief executive. The treasurer is actually really the finance officer. These are all legal terms, these are terms that are used for corporations. Every corporation must have somebody who is designated in these roles as the chief executive, the finance officer. So the City of London is no normal council, it is no normal council exist outside the jurisdiction of parliament and the king or queen and what that means is that any laws that are passed by the government do not apply to them and whilst for all intents and purposes they're looking like a traditional council they are not they're a corporation they're owned and working for a banking oligarchy that's the reason they have a chief executive and a finance officer and their own parliamentary representative called the Remembrancer who really is just a high-flying barrister and what the Remembrancer does is it goes to parliament and it ensures that nothing is passed there that is against the interests of the banking elite who run the corporation that is the City of London. So beyond this, the City of London also has its own courts, it has its own unique laws, its own flag, its own police force, its police drive around in red police cars and the uniforms are different to the Metropolitan Police, so it's completely different, completely separate. The head of the corporation is the Lord Mayor of the City of London. The Lord Mayor has a major role in the city, but is also an international ambassador for the UK's financial and professional services sector. The Lord Mayor will fulfil that role in part by travelling overseas to promote the sector and will travel up to 30 countries over a 100 day period throughout the year. The role is entirely separate to that of the Mayor of London but they work well together only having different and distinct responsibilities. The Lord Mayor's status is on par with that of a cabinet minister and the Lord Mayor will host visiting dignitaries and the heads of states on behalf of the government. When the Lord Mayor is installed in the role, he or she is required to hold a show that is a great public procession. The event is held on the second Saturday in November and it's a great public occasion that is captured each year live on the BBC. The process to becoming the Lord Mayor is complicated. The Lord Mayor has to be an alderman and has to have been a sheriff of the City of London already. 
The Lord Mayor is formally chosen by members of the livery companies at a meeting at Common Hall in the Guildhall in late September. However, in reality, the Lord Mayor will have been previously chosen and have gone through a rigorous process in order to ensure that he or she is suitable. The City of London has two sheriffs who are elected each year and serve in office for one year from the 28th of September. Their election is by the livery members who are summoned to the meeting of Common Hall on June the 24th each year. Whilst traditionally one sheriff is an alderman and due to the progress to be the Lord Mayor, the other is usually a livery man who has been nominated to take on the role. There are occasionally contested elections in both 2008 and 2019 and also there are years when there are two aldermen nominated to take on the roles. The procedure and roles are quite extensive and further information is available on the City of London's website. Okay, so now we understand a little bit more about how this corporate entity that is the City of London operates and from where they derive their power, which is ancient decrees that afford them legal rights within the corporate system that are not afforded to other corporate entities, including you or I. Now, the City of London citizens are classed as free men, which means they exist outside of the corporate structure also. And, you know, this is really a big dead giveaway as to the whole corporate system because they take this deadly serious at the City of London, evidencing all the time that they have this free man status, this symbol that says we are free men. That means we are not serfs. And by design, that means you are serfs. If they have to promote this at all times, what it's essentially doing is exposing the scam system. So they're essentially revealing in their behavior an understanding of that system, of which we all exist as citizens of a nation, but most people have no clue about. And of course, that's by design. You need to be that way so that you can be trapped in a corporate system that is able to take your rights away. Free man, plural form of free men. A person not in slavery or serfdom, one who possesses the rights or privileges of a citizen, a man who is free, one who enjoys liberty or who is not subject to the will of another, not a slave or a vassal. And that's from the online dictionary. So the City of London has a guild of freemen. It has a school there that's called the City of London Freeman School. And this title of Freeman, like I said, it's extremely important for the City of London because it signifies the transcendence of the people who operate the city of london corporation from that control system that everyone else is a part of from this hidden serfdom so the city of london are extremely protective over all of those titles and in terms of becoming a free man of the city well that's considered a huge honor and a massive asset and it's something that they call being given the freedom of the city of london now, to become a free man is extremely difficult and it's reserved only for people who the corporation are choosing to allow within their quite secretive fold. And it takes meeting a set of criteria. So one of them is you must be part of one of the livery guilds. Now, I've mentioned these already. So just to explain, the livery guilds go all the way back to medieval times. And this is when the corporation of the City of London, they set up all of these guilds for commerce. So there'd be guilds for everything you could imagine. There's 111 in total. And they all begin with the phrase, the Worshipful Company of. So for example, you'll have a guild that's called the Worshipful Company of Fishmongers or the Worshipful Company of Upholsters or goldsmiths and of course the reason they wanted to establish this is not just because the Thames was a very important part where you had all of these different trades coming and going it was so that the banking oligarchy that ran the city of London corporation could control all of these industries as well and as we all know they use a pyramid structure so if you have a guild and then you have somebody sat right at the top they will then be able to control that trade because they will just control the person in the guild from within inside the city of London and then that will send out the order to the rest of the country so there's all these different worshipful companies of and they all sit with inside the city of london the library companies play a significant part in the life of the city of london i.e the financial district and the heart of the capital not least by providing charitable giving and networking opportunities importantly library men retain voting rights for all of the senior civic offices within the corporation, such as the Lord Mayor and the Sheriffs. Today, 39 out of 111 city livery companies own a premise within the walls of the City of London, as well as the Waterman and the Lighterman, which, although not strictly a livery company, retain headquarters still in regular use. Among the earliest companies known to have had halls there is the Merchant Tailors and the Goldsmiths in the 14th century. And uniquely, the kitchen and the crypt of Merchant Tailors Hall has survived both the Great Fire of London 
kitchen and the blitz the kitchen now having been in uninterrupted use for over 600 years okay so that gave you a little bit of an insight into how important the library companies are not just for controlling industry but also because it gives them voting rights so that's a very powerful position in and of itself but also i have a lot to say about that past quote especially the last bit about the great fire of london which is one of the most significant events in the history of great britain and also the history of the city of london but we're going to come back to that in part two because that one is well it's pretty crazy so we'll save that for part two but going back to becoming a freeman of the city like i said there's only a small number of ways to do this one is to be the son or daughter of a library company member who is also a freeman and then you can be given status uh, because of your paternal right and another one is to be given it in an honorary way and that's very rare and considered a huge honor so i'm just going to reel off a few names of people who have become freemen of the city of london ulysses s grant theodore roosevelt nelson mandela margaret thatcher alan greenspan ex head of the federal reserve bill gates and of course there's lots and lots of monarchs and aristocrats on that list as well which i'm not going to read out matt carney well of course he was ex-governor of the bank of england and the bank of canada and is now mr globalist best friends with klaus schwab jk rowling that's a more recent one princess diana now that's an interesting one because she comes from the spencer family who the venetians married into as part of their plan to expand their control in england and the way it was working is they was looking for families aristocratic families that were already fairly well up the pecking order that they could marry into as they got their fangs into the country so that's how they managed to get themselves into princess diana's family the spencer family and i think this is how she became a free man of the city and it's also probably why her marriage to prince charles took place in the city of london so it took place in st paul's cathedral which sits inside the city of london and that's something that's very uncommon for royal weddings i've looked back at all the royal weddings none of them took place in st paul's cathedral over the past hundred years but princess diana and prince charles or king charles as he now is so i think that's why it took place there i think that's why she was given free man of the city and interestingly as well st paul's cathedral just so happens to be built on the site of a roman temple in honor of the roman moon goddess diana so she got married in a cathedral that was built on the site of a temple to the goddess diana and here's where it gets very very strange she also died in france in a tunnel that was also built on the site of a temple this time to isis which is of course the egyptian name for the same moon goddess diana so the egyptians called her isis the romans called her diana and she was married on the site of that temple and she died on the site of a temple of her namesake diana there's also a story about diana and lucifer lucifer is the shining one the bright star in the sky and there is an old italian myth about diana marrying lucifer and essentially being used as a baby making machine for lucifer so again it gets very strange when you look into these things there's lots of odd coincidences Quo warranto is Latin for by what warrant or authority. A writ of quo warranto is a common law remedy which is used to challenge a person's right to hold a public or corporate office. A state may also use a quo warranto action to revoke a corporation's charter. When bringing a petition for a writ of quo warranto, individual members of the public have standing as citizens and taxpayers. In one case from Alabama, the court noted that the writ of quo warranto is utilized to test whether a person may lawfully hold office. And the purpose of quo warranto is to ascertain whether the office is constitutionally and legally authorized to perform any act in or exercise any functions of office to which he or she lays claim okay so this is a really important term everyone it's used in common law to seek remedy and quote waranto is how you would challenge a corporation's authority so their stated or claimed authority under which they are exercising functions you would issue a writ of quo waranto if you wanted to challenge that so it's a legal term it's something you would hear in a court of law and having said that let's go back to our story about the city of london the city of london corporation had its privileges stripped by a writ of quo waranto under charles ii in 1683 
but they were later reinstalled and confirmed by an act of parliament under William III and Mary II in 1690 after the Glorious Revolution. Okay, so this is really important because in 1683, the City of London had its status as a corporation completely stripped from them by Charles II. He issued the writ of Quo Warranto, which basically said, where do you derive your power from? And he took that to the court of law and he used that against him. So this was using the Roman corporate system against the people who were the ones that brought about the system. So very interesting. And what this really shows us is something that we know was happening throughout this period. For over 500 years it was happening and that's this big power struggle that was taking place between the banksters and the monarchs. Some monarchs were subdued, some of them were manipulated, some of them were subdued through loans or threats or assassination even, which Charles I, the father, of Charles II who issued the writ of Quo Warranto, he was executed by, of course, Oliver Cromwell. So it's very interesting that his son went on to issue this writ, isn't it? Now, you have to remember that Cromwell himself was no real power. Yes, he became a dictator following the execution of the king. But just like Napoleon Bonaparte, this revolution was actually funded by the Venetian bankers. So this was part of the power struggle. And Oliver Cromwell was a Venetian agent. And in his family tree was also the widely hated Venetian agent, Thomas Cromwell, who lived from 1485 to 1540. He was the Earl of Essex and he was the person who pushed Henry VIII to break with Rome and found the Church of England. Now, interestingly, Henry VIII also had a sex advisor and that sex advisor was again a Venetian agent out of Italy. So the Venetians were getting their fangs into England and that's where all of this come from. So when that writ was issued by Charles II, this was something of course that would have angered those in the world of Venetian finance because they were seeking to use the corporation, the City of London, to control the country. Now a key part of this story is understanding that the use of usury, which was the way in which nations through their monarchs were being captured by the Lombards, was always considered a huge sin. Pope Leo I forbade usury using canon law and this is where the term Lombard lending came from and it's still used today like I mentioned before. It's just a form of lending in which the borrower puts up collateral as part of the terms of the loan and there were many other tricks being pulled to get around this as well so one of them was using Jewish agents to make loans and the reason they used Jewish agents was because usury was outlawed by Christianity however a Jew could make a usurious loan to a non-Jew so this is how Jews became synonymous with banking. These Christians, these families out there in Italy, they were willing to do anything to ensure that they could make these loans. And one of the tricks that they were doing was, of course, to either use Jewish agents or to marry into Jewish families as well. And today, if you look at some of the families in Germany, for example, like the Warbeck family, that's a Venetian family. So it's a Jewish family, a German family, but they come from Venice. So that's how this all started to kind of unfold in Europe. And that's why there was this reputation that the Jews got for um, being moneylenders, for being extortionate moneylenders. That's what they were frequently accused of, as well as blood libel. And this led to the expulsion of all Jews in England in 1290 through the Edict of the Expulsion. So that was when King Edward I, he issued a royal decree expelling all Jews from the Kingdom of England. And the reason for that was because of this moneylending practice, which he saw as seeking to undermine his power and bankrupt the nation. Now, this is taken from Wicked Wikipedia. So just bear that in mind. An image of the Jew as a diabolical figure who hated Christ started to become widespread and myths such as the tale of the wandering Jew and allegation of ritual murders originated and spread throughout England as well as in Scotland and Wales. In frequent cases of blood libel, Jews were said to hunt for children to murder before Passover so they could use their blood to make the unleavened matzah. Anti-Jewish attitudes sparked numerous riots in which many Jews were murdered, most notably in 1190 when over 100 Jews were massacred in York. Now, just to be clear, because it seems today like you have to state things in very clear terms that was taken from wikipedia and the reason that i've added that is it's part of the narrative and it's important to understand because once cromwell was in power he revoked the edict of expulsion which had existed since 1290 so he revoked that in the 1600s now of course what that could also be is that he was allowing the moneylenders to settle back in england or their agents to set back in england now this is not some kind of conspiracy we're literally discussing the history of england 
gun through factual incidences that are recorded in encyclopedias and on Wikipedia. But what many people have unlikely heard is when all of these facts are put together. So people might know that Jews were driven out of England in 1290, but what they might not know is that there was this whole narrative that was taking place between the bankers of Venice and the monarchs of England. They also might not know that Oliver Cromwell was sent in by the Venetians to get rid of Charles I so that they could fully take control of England and start enacting usury again in the country. So what we're really looking at here is a war between monarchs and banking oligarchies and you know you don't have to like the monarchs, you don't have to agree with monarchy but it certainly does seem to me like the banking parasites were really working hard to get themselves established in these countries and it probably was not for the better because we know that as bad as Charles I was, things got a lot worse once we had Cromwell in. Now Cromwell died not long after revoking the Edict of Expulsion and this was the period in which Charles II, the son of Charles I, was actually reinstated and he was brought almost to the brink of bankruptcy through the Anglo-Dutch War and the consequences of the Great Fire of London which we're going to speak about in part two. So this is all a key part of the story as well but he actually, like I said, went on to enact Quo Warranto against the City of London. Now whether this was done at the behest of the banking clans to reign in the power of existing families that were already in the city of London prior to I don't know a takeover bid which we know happened with William of Orange so you could argue that or maybe this was just simply because he wanted to rein in the power of the Venetians and attack the banksters who were already making huge inroads into British politics like I said they had many agents there they had many aristocrats in their pockets in parliament now I think it's probably the latter but I can't say for sure, nobody knows for sure, but what we do know is that just a few years later, William of Orange, who was another patsy of the Venetians, they were sent to the UK and they dethroned James II. So they dethroned him and they put Mary and William on the throne. And they did two things immediately. The first was to repeal the Quo Warranto that Charles II had applied to the City of London. So this gave the City of London back all of its special privileges and rights and its corporate status. So that was absolutely key. So that showed you who they was working for right away. And the second thing they did was allow the Bank of England to be established. Now that's absolutely critical to the story of this global takeover by banksters and critical to the story of of the city of London. Representatives of some of the leading oligarchical families signed an invitation to Venetian puppet William of Orange and his wife Mary, an illegitimate daughter of James II. John Churchill, the future Duke of Marlborough, was typical of James's former supporters who now went over to support William and Mary. William landed and marched on London. This is called by the British the Glorious Revolution of 1688. In reality, it consolidated the powers and prerogatives of the oligarchy, which were expressed in the Bill of Rights of 1689. No taxes could be levied, no army raised and no laws suspended without the consent of the oligarchy in Parliament. Members of Parliament were guaranteed immunity for their political actions and free speech. Soon, ministers could not stay in office for long without the support of a majority of Parliament. Parliament was supreme over the monarch and the church. At the same time, seats in Parliament were now bought and sold in a de facto market. The greater the graft to be derived from the seat, the more the seat was worth. Within a few years of the Glorious Revolution, there was a Bank of England, 1694, and a national debt. When George I ascended to the throne in 1714, he knew he was nothing more than a doge placeholder the tool of the Venetian oligarchy. So the doge was really like the mafia boss for the Venetian banking clans. They would vote in a doge and they would sit atop of the Council of Ten. And the Council of Ten was where you had all of the representatives of the key banking families. And that's where all of the decisions would be made. So whether somebody was going to be assassinated, whether a war was going to be brewed in a certain country, whether somebody was going to be bribed or blackmailed, whether they was going to create a false flag event, all of that would happen in the Council of Ten and the Doge would sit at the top of that. So what this quote is saying here is that by the time we got to the 1700s, by the time George I ascended to the throne, it was already a done deal. The Doge was in power and the Venetian oligarchy had complete control of the City of London. And we know that because the Bank of England and the national debt was already in place. And like Nathan Rothschild would go on to say in his famous quote, I don't care what puppet they place on the throne of the 
Kingdom of England. The person who controls England is the person who controls the money supply and it is I who controls the money supply. And that was when the Rothschilds took over the Bank of England. But of course the Rothschilds were also working alongside these banking clans that had originated from the region in Venice. They'd all intermarried by that point and consolidated their power many, many times over. So that's how it was working. Now recently we've had that term Doge again, haven't we? We've had this cryptocurrency, the Dogecoin. Now I don't think that's coincidental at all. I think that is something that if you think about this from a more esoteric sense, it makes sense to me that something like that would arise at this point where we're going through this great reset, this great transformation, many of which has happened before. And it happened, why? Well, it happened because of the Doge. It happened because in the past, these things were orchestrated. There was the great depopulation event that happened during the bubonic plague. There was also the great plague of London, which we're going to speak about in part two, that people have said was something that was orchestrated by the Venetian oligarchs. So there's many ways we could take this one. I think I'm probably going to leave it there, but it's interesting to think about, isn't it, that maybe this cryptocurrency, maybe that was symbolic in a way. Maybe it was chosen for a reason. Maybe it was chosen as a little sign, a little sign, a little symbol that hacks back to these stories and narratives that I'm talking about here. Okay, I'm going to end part one with a quote from Lyndon H. LaRouche Jr. The currently ending 500-year cycle in European history, which came to the surface during the 15th century, has been determined by the emerging conflict between the two leading forces within European culture during that century. On the one side, there was the forces of the Golden Renaissance centred around such figures as Cardinal Nicolaus of Cusa and the 1439-40 Council of Florence. On the opposing side was the re-emerging power of the Venice-centred European aristocratic and financier oligarchy. All European history since the 15th century within Europe and globally has been dominated by the cultural conflict between the radiated influence of the Renaissance and the opposing Venice-launched force of the so-called Enlightenment. So wow, what a bombshell episode for part one. We went deep into this story and we uncovered that much of our history has been the story essentially of these parasitic banking elites ever growing in power and taking more control of our nations up until the point they managed to get their central banks put in place where they could enact this death-based, debt-based fiat system, death and debt-based. And that's exactly what it is. And the reason it's death-based is because it relies on never-ending conflict, constant war, constant bloodshed, pandemics, constant crises, the myth of scarcity, starvation, and there's many things that I didn't add in today's episode, which I could have, such as the starvation of the Irish. All of these events were instigated by the banking elites as they sought to sink their fangs further and further into Europe. So in part two, we're going to be picking up where we left off, beginning with the setting up of the Bank of England within the city of London, the central bank, which all future central banks would be modelled on. We're going to be discussing the fire of London and what this reveals about the history of the city of London, because in my opinion, that was a huge false flag. So I'm going to be laying that one bare in part two. We're also going to discuss the spider's web that emanated out from the city of London and led to the creation of all these offshore tax havens in all of the old British colonies. And we're going to be talking about the esoteric and occult symbolism that is completely enmeshed with that place. The city of London, yes, it's full of it. It's full of all of this occult. And why wouldn't it be? That is essentially what we're talking about. We're talking about people who worship the occult. So members, please head over to parallelmike.com to listen to the full episode. If you are yet to become a member but you're finding value in this research and content, please consider signing up and supporting me as a member. My YouTube channel for my show on finance and investing has been well and truly crushed by censorship and we are very quickly heading to a place where content like this is simply going to become unobtainable. You're not going to be able to find it. That's what happens on my YouTube now. I got plenty of subscribers but the views go down and down and down because they cease to promote my material on YouTube. So signing up is just one way of ensuring that people like myself can continue to deliver this kind of research and you can get to hear the full shows where we take things much further than we do in part one. So in closing, thank you all for listening. I appreciate each and every one of you and I wish you all good health and happiness. And of course, I'll see you all in the next one.
what you are basically. Deep, deep down, far, far in, is simply the fabric and structure of existence itself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. Peace in our time. Peace in all time. 